Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Tuesday, September 24th, 2019 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So much to get to. We've got an impeachment inquiry. The first step towards a second step to a congressional act, which may not be followed through by the Senate, but it is something. Oh, and we are all miffed that we had to learn the word prorog when a British court ruled that the proroging never happened. Can't unlearn the word. And a young Swedish girl turns into an Old Testament prophet who screams at all of us that we're doomed. And somehow the reaction is, see, she gets it. What a great young person. It gives me hope. No, no, no. That's, that's exactly not the point. Give up hope. She's saying give up hope. She has braids, but she's also hopeless. Confront your cognitive dissonance. Well, there will be time for all of that. In fact, in the spiel, we will be talking about impeachment. But I wanted to give a longer than usual intro for a guest who needs a little more explanation than usual. So Laura Duca is a writer and activist, as she'll tell you, who has hundreds of thousands of Twitter followers who first gained fame with a scorched earth essay in Teen Vogue about Trump gaslighting America. The writer Roxanne Gay tweeted about that essay. The condescension and surprise directed toward Teen Vogue for publishing great writers is a measure of how women slash girls are underestimated. Since that time, Duca has filleted Fox News hosts, been profiled in the New York Times, but also been the center of a few embarrassing stories, such as her account of her criticizing fellow Huffington Post writers under what she thought was a pretty opaque cloak of anonymity, but it turned out to be translucent. BuzzFeed also recently wrote about the feminist journalism class taught by the 28-year-old Duca. All 10 students complained to the dean. The piece was such a thorough takedown that the writer Roxanne Gay tweeted about that story, quote, the shelter whiteness provides always shocks the shit out of me. Lauren Duca came in to our offices to talk about her book, and we did that. And you will hear the edited conversation. All of our conversations are edited, by the way. It's never my intention to make guests look bad unless they are insistent in making themselves look bad. And I do think it's my obligation to challenge guests. But I did, in the interview, wanted to raise some problems I had with the book. For instance... She quotes an activist claiming, did you know that abortion is considered unconstitutional in New York State? And as a journalist, she does nothing to rebut this incorrect statement. She calls NPR media reporter David Folkenflick an NRA media consultant. That mistake has occasioned her publisher to include a written errata note with all hardcover books. 
She writes that statistics about low voter turnout among youths, quote, have inspired headlines like when it comes to politics, do millennials care about anything from the Atlantic? When I pointed out to her that that article indeed was in the Atlantic, but it wasn't written by the Atlantic. It was written by Allstate. It was an ad or what's called sponsored content. This exchange happened. That was a weak paragraph. This um, is a weak podcast. You write that. You write that. Duca, writing about murder victim Kitty Genovese, does give proper context in describing the myth that rose up around the indifference of her neighbors in Queens. She says that America is, quote, being killed in the way Kitty Genovese, the apocryphal victim of the murder case, that is used to demonstrate the bystander effect. Well, Kitty Genovese isn't an apocryphal victim, but I had a greater point to make, yet my pointing out that she's using the wrong phrase inspired this exchange. You correctly contextualize that we're not sure, or it's probably not true, the yeah. myth about Kitty Genovese. It's not. But you call her an but apocryphal a, victim. Right, so it's a myth. I was taught, so if, do you know what the bystander murdered. effect is? Yes, of course. So the bystander effect is when... Okay, so the better phrase would have been the actual victim in a murder case that has taken on mythological dimension. And you could say that's a nitpick, but I was trying to get at a different point, which is by working outside of institutions, Lauren Duca has been allowed to write what she wants, but sometimes for a young writer, the stodgy institution with rules can save one from mistakes. It's hard to get to that point because there was a lot of back and forthing. It was a rollicking conversation. I do think our editorial team did right by Lauren and with you with our final cut, and I do hope you will listen to my interview with Lauren Duca. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Lauren Duca is a journalist who, after being appalled by the election results of 2016, and I'm not just talking Missouri Senate, took to writing, which is good. That's her job. She wrote an article about how President Trump was gaslighting America. It resonated. And she says that having an article go viral is like your first orgasm. Soon thereafter, <laughs> she went on the Fox News network where she sparred with Tucker Carlson in a segment that ended with Lauren saying, though you could hear no audio, you could read her lips, saying that Tucker Carlson was, quote, a sexist pig. I believe this also resonated for... And here's my theory, the fact that Tucker Carlson is a sexist pig. Lauren Duca is always in the news and on Twitter, and now she is out with a new book. It's really aimed at young people, her, her readership by and large. It's called How to Start a Revolution, Young People and the Future of American Politics. Hello, Lauren. How are you? Hi, thanks for having me. <laughs> so, Young People and the Future of American Politics. a little bit of an explanation of young people, but it very much seems like the intended audience is for young people, maybe people who were like you, who weren't as into politics, into the daily ins and outs of politics before this election result. Is that fair? Yeah, I mean, I think that it, it expands beyond. I think that the political awakening that I'm looking at is available to and has occurred for 
Americans of all ages. But, you know, young people are the future and increasingly will be in leadership positions uh, and, you know, increasingly inciting confusion as we are leading industries. <laughs> um, but because that is how time works. And apparently yeah. that has become surprising. So, yeah, I'm interested in in uh, generational demographic behavior shifts um, that will change the political order as we begin to have more seats at the table. So you are trying to teach them right and let them lead the way. Essentially, is <laughs> yes, what you're saying. I really am. I really see this book as sort of ground the 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 ground floor, the baseline, and just a foundation from which people will have to chart their own course for taking action. Now, since the, these statistics have been kept, and really since people have been voting, it is true that people age into more political participation. They also age into things like more news consumption, and the two probably go hand in hand. And they also age into things like like home ownership, and they mm-hmm. all are concurrent phenomena that play into each other. Do you really think it's different now that young people didn't care so much, and then as they grow older, they start caring more? That's always been true. Now it's different? Yeah, I think that there, you know, there's a natural increase in agency that occurs as you grow older, but the shift in political agency, especially for young people, is about snapping out of seeing themselves as subjects of authority uh, in a an enlightened and specific way. So it's not just about gradually aging into considering yourself an adult with self-determination. It's a click moment for uh, those who saw themselves as children, those who saw themselves as students, um, but then that sim- same shift even for older millennials who were viewing our political system as this automatic source of authority and this click moment has happened in a really extreme, concentrated and acute way uh, and all at once. So political awakenings are not specific to the Trump era. But what is specific to it is that so many have happened in such an intense manner and swept the country in record time. And what we're seeing is, I think, uh, really fertile ground for a total reshaping of our relationship with politics that will be ushered in as this group that's coming of age in this crisis reworks what it means to be a citizen. So voter turnout, here are some stats. Among 18 to 29-year-olds, voter turnout in the midterms, that was the number one group for an increase in voter turnout. It went from 20% in 2014, which is to say to compare it to the last midterms, to 36% in 2018. However, 36% turnout of any age cohort is still the lowest. So we're seeing a percentage increase, and yet it is true that if a politician wants to appeal to people and he can only choose one decade of person, the dumb decade would be let's appeal to the 18 to 29 year olds well i think that that's really foolish and actually what we're seeing is a very intentional alienation of young people in the way campaigns have been run really up until recently and there should be more examples of catering to young people i mean if politicians wanted to reach young people what would their campaigns look like they would look like all of oh the- you just say pokemon go to the polls <laughs> fun quotes like that Pepe the Frog means. No, 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 no. You know what I'm talking about. Well, the aesthetics of advertising to millennials are a sans serif font, maybe a neon light, a potted plant. We know what these ads look like. And none of that crap, none of the kind of stuff you'd pick up next to the register at Urban Outfitters, all this kind of very obvious, this obvious aesthetic that the younger generation is drawn to, influenced by Instagram and all of this, is completely missing from our prototype of what a political campaign looks like. There's absolutely no 
effort at just the most basic shallow level of, of advertising and marketing. This doesn't require genius. And it's the, the reality that that exposes is not just about young people. It's about politicians' failure to, in general, overall, our elected officials' failure to expand the electorate. So you write about uh, Siraj Patel, who ran for Congress against Carolyn Maloney, and he was embodying a few of these outreach efforts to the young. You write that he lost the Democratic primary in an unexpectedly close race, but he actually lost 60 to 40. And this was, other than Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the best example we could come up with. I think that the, the reason why I included him and I included another losing campaign in my book as well is because it's very important to me to emphasize that running for office is an act that invigorates the health of democracy, even if you lose. I think that Siraj's campaign was a success and that it brought more people into the political process. And they even if even if they that means that they will be more actively pressuring Carolyn Maloney. I mean, that makes a difference. In your book, you write a lot about a Harvard Business School essay that I think clarified a lot of your thinking. And this touches on some of the points that you just made. And it's about how both parties are involved essentially in a duopoly. Tell me what caught your eye and what caught your attention about the arguments made in that essay. Yeah, so um, the that piece exposed me to the term the political industrial complex, mm-hmm. and I had not been exposed to it before, and was shocked to find that it is not prevalent in much political writing at all. Um, which is odd to me because we we speak so much about industrial complexes. When you were writing, when you wrote the gaslighting essay and much of your political analysis, I mean this this uh, essay came out or s- this paper came out in 2017. I've read. I don't know, most, but much of what you've written. And it's clearly from what I think is the correct lens, which is that the Republican Party is damaging to our democracy because they consciously want to do nothing. And most mm-hmm. of the good um, solutions are coming from the Democratic Party. And yet your book focuses on a, uh, so much about how it's a duopoly and both parties are equally to blame. Well, I don't think that that is what my book says, but uh, that's a very interesting take. To put it out there, the the graphic is Republicans and Democrats uh, uh, pulling at each other from both sides. It's written by two very esteemed Harvard professors who are essentially arguing they're both to blame. All that matters is raising money and that who's getting lost in the middle are the people who are independent voters. But your entire analysis, which is, I think, the right analysis, is that Trump is horrible and the, and the Democrats are trying to move this country to a better solution. So you can, those things are intention. They're not. They are. My big idea, actually, from the book is not about the duopoly. So the duopoly is part of explaining the system and breaking But you come it. back to the duopoly and the political industrial chance? complex. Of course, I'll let you answer. But I just want to be clear, cool. because if our listeners are listening, they, they need a certain amount of foundation to know what we're talking about. The essay that you write in the book, which takes pl- over an entire chapter of this book, is about one industrial complex to rule them all. And it is about, and it's a very interesting idea, about how both parties um, conspire to not serve independence because they're so keen on getting money from p- partisans, from uh, donors, and yes, from interest groups. that's correct. Yeah. The whole system is fucked, Mike. My big idea in my book is that we need to challenge authority and the bizarre secret rules of who participates in what is considered to be politically acceptable, what is considered to be political authority. And I mean that in terms of policy and rules and legal 
legal elements that have a hierarchy on our lives and also norms and values and the questions of who gets to talk and who gets to have a place in the political conversation. The duopoly and the political industrial complex is this system that we're up against and it extends beyond the obvious kind of revolving door in Washington and the moneyed interests and the lobbyists. So that is the the, the foremost, um, most grotesque manifestation of this thing looks like moneyed interests having outsized influence and the average voter being statistically non-significant as another study in that chapter is quoted saying directly. Look, I don't want to be coy. Uh, Yes, the political industrial complex idea is an interesting idea. It is but one chapter of the book is dedicated to that and titled that. One chapter of an eight-chapter book. And after you introduce it, you use it to explain many, many things. And I just quite frankly think that you overuse it. And I also think that you misunderstand it. You write, according to the paper, the term political industrial complex had only appeared in three works prior to the publication of this paper, twice in academic journals and once in the Wall Street Journal. I did a nexus search. I found 316 prior sightings of it. Oh, that's how it was cited in that Harvard business paper. You, I don't understand. I did a nexus search, so you didn't check to see if that assertion was accurate. Maybe other assertions in the paper are inaccurate. You're quoting a paper saying this has only been mentioned three times before, but it was mentioned 316 times. There are some duplicates, but, you know, going back to the 70s, people, how could it be that the political, the phrase, the political industrial complex had only been mentioned three times? Uh, I, I, that's what I cited it in the paper. But, I, you know, if that's that's an error, that's an error. But the, the term, I think, still is an effective way of explaining the system that keeps us alienated from participating in our politics. And I think it's still an effective breakdown for the average person who doesn't understand how we've been so extraordinarily cut off from exercising our right to democracy. If I was your intended audience and I was someone who didn't know much about politics and I read that, I would take it at face value. And if I was an older person advising them, I'd say, ooh, you better watch out if she says that it's only been mentioned three times when in fact it has been mentioned 300 times. But there are a lot of other... That's still quite low though, don't you think? For the political, like the political industrial complex is the industrial complex. Complex that sets the tone for all industrial you, complex. So, Mike, I would off. say, you know what? Thanks for catching that. I'll make sure I update it because they're going to need to do more printings. This book is about giving people the information they need to participate as citizens. And uh, my breakdown of the political industrial complex in entertaining and accessible terms is going to do for that term, I hope, what I was able to do with the term gaslighting. I wrote a book about how people need to be active citizens and and you're you're it's, you're, you're it's, coming for me on a typo it's laden with a, errors you cite an atlantic article you say recently these statistics about voter non-participation have inspired headlines like when it comes to politics do millennials care about anything from the atlantic while that article did run in the atlantic did you read the article yes do you know what i'm going to say I'm talking about the framing of the article, and the point is that those kind of titles use the idea that there is millennial apathy. The article was in, if you open the Atlantic, you would find that. It was not written by the Atlantic. It was written by Allstate. It's an ad. It's sponsored content that was run by the Atlantic. It was written by Allstate. Because, but an ad, do you know how ads work? They built off of cultural, ads are built off of cultural ideas. And the part of that paragraph, Uh the point of that paragraph is to say that it is a cultural idea that millennials are apathetic and we're not. We actually care quite a bit, but we've been alienated from 
some political right. action. And, and that's so that's what the actually, article said. I would like, I'm really happy that you brought this Next up. Next, you write about the Chicago Tribune article. I would love to talk about the point of the reason I included I'll just throw this out there, too. The Chicago piece. Tribune article, where you quote the headlines, Millennial Surprise, There Isn't an App to Solve All Problems. Both of these articles that you cite that illustrate the idea that millennials don't care are in the service of articles that show, that go to show that millennials, or try to show that millennials do care. So it gives the impression that you're citing a headline that where the actual underlying articles actually rebut your point. The purpose of that paragraph is to illustrate that the idea needs to be rebutted. By citing a headline where the underlying art, the headline is used as, although some people say that millennials don't care, here's the fact. So which is some ex- people are saying it and then that's, that's what, what I'm touching But upon. that's what your book does. Your book does the same thing. It says there is this notion that millennials are apathetic, but we're not. Your your book starts with the sentence. I used to think I don't want to so misquote I, can it. Can I ask you? Are you saying before that before the twenty sixteen election? Are you saying I only that there ever, is not a perception that millennials are apathetic? Of course there is. You write about that too so in your you, book. So you're saying my framing of a single paragraph, but you're still the grand theme framing of my book is still accurate. You criticized articles for saying that millennials are apathetic. No, I'm not. Cri- I'm not use, criticizing articles in that section. I'm using them as evidence of this idea existing. Can we move on? You this need so evidence. Tired. To prove that millennials are apathetic, your so whole what are you goes, even saying, Mike? Millennials are apathetic, and that's a weak paragraph. Can we move on? Do you consider yourself an activist or a journalist? I think that journalism is necessarily an activist practice. Has to be. Yes, because I think that the purpose of journalism is not just to get the truth. It's to get the truth insofar as it empowers people with information. To be clear, I think that activists um, who do not identify as journalists do things that are anti-journalistic, right? Like they might cherry pick or uh, manipulate information to convince people of their cause. But so um, my cause is democracy. So I see myself as first and foremost a journalist, but I believe that um, it is my duty to um, aspire to it for it to also be an activist. You have a good definition of journalism, I think, in here. Journalism is a tool, a human invention for building consensus around fact. That's great. I just don't think that could be a step before that which compels you to become an activist. I mean, I've had this debate with many people. I don't think that a journalist is necessarily, ipso facto, an activist. I believe they should be, and I think we should all be conducting ourselves as journalist activists. I think we should all be building towards public power and equality. So, you know, maybe maybe I should say, I for me, journalism is necessarily an activist practice. I mean, I think especially it should be in this, this crisis moment. I, I don't think we have time for the other stuff. Who trained you to be a journalist? Who trained me to be a journalist? Well, I think the book Elements of Journalism, probably most of all, um, it's kind of trippy that it's not a profession and it's a trade and you have to make your your own ethics, right? And I am no, always updating. you don't have to make your own ethics. You absolutely do. No. There are codes of journalism ethics, and if you work for an institution, you adopt those ethics. Well, I'm a freelancer, and I yep. have my own set of ethics, and sometimes they're a little outside the norm of what uh, I think a newsroom would be able to get away with. So I actually think I have a particular power because I have an, a massive independent platform, and I'm not beholden to anyone. Um, and I think that I'm allowed to say things that that sort of both sides appearance, objectivity, performance bullshit keeps a lot of people in mainstream positions from saying, I believe equality is the ultimate good. I believe we should create an equitable society. I believe we deserve the most public will and that we should be using it to build equity. And I want to be radically transparent about that. I don't want anyone to be, I don't want a cherry monger. I don't want to manipulate information. I want to be 
working towards the goal of equity with total transparency and uh yeah sometimes making fucking weird jokes about smoking pot on twitter it's all it's all part of a thing as you said you know it is good to know where you're coming from here's who i am here's my perspective Mm -hmm. certain amount of cards on the table i'm not even talking about oversharing there are downsides to that and you talk about this a lot by Mm -hmm. putting yourself out there you're putting yourself in a vulnerable situation and you haven't always been able to navigate that because it's almost impossible to navigate that. The old way of doing journalism where there was this ethic of the journalist isn't the story sidesteps that. There is something Mm -hmm. to be said for that way of doing journalism where the journalist tries very much not to be the story. Sure. I, I think and I think we need we need that still. I think that two things. Uh actually three. But well so one is I think we need a level of radical transparency that doesn't always include personal details but is less of the kind of thing of I can't identify as a feminist and a journalist or I, I, you know, what what level can you not disclose, you know? And I think yeah. that's an interesting conversation we have to have more as we are all increasingly exposing ourselves because of the nature of the pace of social media. We all know about cancel culture, right? And it's creating this problem where people are scared to use their voices and they're scared to say what they really feel and they're just hopping in when when the mob has a consensus on something and they're not actually going with their gut. I hope there are more of me. Like I do have this really weird, creepy intersection where people are interested in me as an influencer and I am upholding myself to journalistic ethics and there are very few people that are doing both of those things. Do you like the word I, influencer? I actually, you know what, I, I refuse to be cringy about it because people want me to be cringy about the word millennial and you you know, people in high school wanted me to be cringy about them. Call me by my last name, but it's a good last name. And millennials a demographic and I'm a fucking influencer, baby. <laughs> Lauren Duca is the author of How to Start a Revolution, Young People and the Future of American Politics. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. And now the spiel. Nancy Pelosi acted swiftly, sternly. And this is very important, acted before the first polls could be issued, telling her not to do it. An impeachment inquiry into President Trump shall convene. Therefore, today, I'm announcing the House of Representatives moving forward with an official impeachment inquiry. I'm directing our six committees to proceed with their investigations under that umbrella of impeachment inquiry. The president must be held accountable. No one is above the law. Getting back to our founders, in the darkest days of the American Revolution, Thomas Paine wrote, the times have found us. The times found them to fight for and establish our democracy. The times have found us today. Now, actually, in this case, I think it was the Wall Street Journal who broke the original story, but the point stands. It's time for accountability. And it's also very tempting for a careful observer of the president's dereliction of duty, followed closely by his daring do of misconduct, to say, well, at last, we finally got the guy. But wait. Remember the last time we had circumstances largely reported through anonymous sources describing some foul-seeming acts of coordination with a foreign power to discomfort a Democratic politician? Remember that? Remember how without all the facts filled in that many people and the media that serves them rushed to fill the gaps in knowledge and the lacuna of interpretation with the most damning possible explanations, the fizzle 
of that period still reverberates. Does a fizzle reverberate? It still has a little uh, effervescence to it, let us say. MSNBC has built its programming around this very question, filling in the blanks in the harshest possible way. It's great for ratings. It also makes listeners say, I guess I'm not crazy. The unstated premise of MSNBC for more than two years has been, how much does this doom the president? That question is applied to almost everything covered on MSNBC and by many websites and in many podcasts. For a few months, our our cable friends have been wandering about a little lost. They're looking for this Biden misspeak or that Kamala Harris mishear or some doctored presidential seal or the president's latest attack on the cleanliness of a major American city. But now, with this inquiry, they're going back to first principles. Decades ago, the question was, what does the president know and when did he know it? Now, the question is, what do we know about the president's actions and how far can we take what we don't know? Remember the reverence for the unflappable Robert Mueller? Recall the certainty that there'd be smoking guns. Revisit the time we thought the sound of Michael Cohen flipping was more a death knell and less a sad whimper. If it's what I say, I love it. That was once interpreted as Exhibit A in a public shaming. Now it's seen as a shameless publicist's exhibitionism. But what about the fact that he admitted it on camera just now? Yeah, he did that then too. He called on WikiLeaks to release the emails. Joking! Now he admits that he threatened the withholding of aid before the phone call with Vladimir Zelensky. Just good policy! Which isn't to say that because... We've had smoke in the past and a little bit of fire, yet there was no extinguisher. That doesn't mean that this current incident will be allowed to smolder indefinitely. But again, a warning about filling in the blanks with our hopes rather than with the facts. Now let us listen to what Trump said to reporters before speaking to the United Nations today. I think it's ridiculous. It's a witch hunt. Uh, I'm leading in the polls. They have no idea how they stop me. The only way they can try is through impeachment. This has never happened to a president before. There's never been a thing like this before. It's nonsense. And when you see the call, when you see the readout of the call, uh, which I assume you'll see at some point, you'll understand. That call was perfect. It couldn't have been nicer. And even the Ukrainian government put out a statement that that was a perfect call. There was no pressure put on them whatsoever. But there was pressure put on with respect to Joe Biden. What Joe Biden did for his son, that's something they should be looking at. So of the 10 sentences or sentence-like clauses uttered by the president, nine were lies. It's not a witch hunt. He's not leading in the polls. They do have an idea how to stop him. Impeachment has, in fact, happened before. I unearthed that obscure historical fact. Therefore, it follows that it is a thing. There was no statement put out by Ukraine calling the phone call perfect. I'm wondering where he got that one. Yeah, where he gets a lot of these things, he makes them up. The closest I could find was the Ukrainian foreign minister gave an interview. And here's some of that. It's being translated. American investigators have the full right to turn to the U.S. and to get this information if they think that our president has been pressured. They can clear this up. I know what they spoke about, and I don't think there was any coercion. There was a talk. Talks can be on different topics. Leaders have the right to talk about any problems they wish. This conversation was long, it was friendly, and it touched on a lot of questions, some of which had rather serious implications. Which leads us to the one thing that Trump said that we don't know 
we could have our suspicions, but we don't know if it's a lie. It is that when the transcript is released, we will see there was no pressure. So let's not get ahead of ourselves. And let's also realize that we haven't even gotten to the part of the process where the White House and the GOP decide on a counter argument. Even if this counter argument is bad, precedent holds that most Republicans will adhere to it and much of 40 something percent of the country will believe it. But let's say the counter argument has merit that the phone call The pressure exhibited on the phone call, maybe the pressure was very subtle or ambiguous. Maybe it was even non-existent. And that will change the chances of impeachment because it will change the math. But we do have an impeachment inquiry. They're calling it an impeachment inquiry. And we do have an appetite for accountability. And we also have this one last thing, even more evidence that the grifter once again got caught up in his own grift. He thought he had successfully defined the reality around foreign collusion once before. Therefore, he should engage in it at his earliest convenience. That's a nice takeaway. Even a smart mafia boss knows how to better cover his tracks. And that's it for today's show. The Gist was produced by Daniel Schrader, who's a mid-to-aging millennial who really doesn't care about the thought that millennials are apathetic. He does care about the thought that millennials can be as old as 38. That frightens him. Just was also produced by Christina DeJosa. She's four days in and she's just starting on her own code of ethics. We encourage all of our new employees to come up with their own. Maybe never mention squirrels. What the hell? The Gist, your daily source for news and analysis. No, it's daily. Umpru de Peru and thanks for listening.